Good morning, UCCD. What a joy. What a joy to be together, isn't it? It's wonderful. Oh, Redeemer. Did I say UCCD? Well, is anyone here from UCCD joining us this morning? Welcome. We are so glad you're here. And I hope many of you will take advantage of Mark Dever being there next week and in the uh, seminars for Nine Marks. Uh, I was with Mark in Lucknow just yesterday. He gave me this Goethe, actually, and, uh, which I thought was a little ironic. But anyhow, he's going to be here with us. A number of their team from Nine Marks is going to be here, and, uh, and they're sharing with us. And Mark will be speaking at uh, UCCD next week. That's no excuse to go listen to Mark for uh, next week, but do go to the seminar that's going on. We want you there as we do this joint program between UCCD and Redeemer. You're so sharp to catch it, you know. What a joy, what a joy to be together. I was with many brothers and sisters who were uh, praising God and preaching the word throughout Lucknow and uh, Uttar Pradesh, the, the state in India, and it was a wonderful thing to see what God is doing in their, in their midst. And uh, I hope I have a chance to speak to you about that as we uh, share later about what, what God is doing in this amazing place. One of the things that they most needed uh, as the Nine Marks team was there was to hear about the Bible. Many of them have come to faith from Hindu backgrounds. They know nothing of the Scriptures. And, and as a result, they um, are desperate and hungry for the Word of God. Biblical knowledge in the world and the rest of the world, to their surprise, is dropping. They thought we knew everything. These young Hindu converts who are actually preaching, are preachers in small congregations throughout Lucknow. People know less and less about the Bible. Polls show that people can't identify most of the Ten Commandments. Our British friends, polls were done there. They know less than Americans. But Americans think wrong, more wrong things, like the fact that the Second Commandment, in many Americans' mind, is the right to keep and bear arms. <laughs> My word. I don't know what it is in your country, biblical literacy, among Christians, what it's like. But it, it is important for us to delve deeply into God's Word, to know His Word. A poll was re- recently given on a Bible college campus. The, uh, the fellow went around and just asked questions of students who were going to be pastors. And it was a simple question. What, what uh, is the book of Galatians about? And the majority, majority of them could not answer. He writes, this was disturbing. Though most students had read the book, only two out of the twelve were able to correctly outline its basic message. But listen to this. When I asked many of the students to tell me why they thought they were unprepared to give an answer about the message of Galatians... I receive the following responses. Churches today don't go very deep. Churches need to have more in-depth Bible studies because a lot of times it's pretty shallow. Churches need to spend more time teaching us how to read the Bible and less on little topical lessons on how to do life. All the students seem to be saying the same thing. They've been raised in churches where the teaching was fun and dynamic relevant and entertaining, and where the focus invariably 
centered on lessons for life rather than on God and on His story of redemption in Christ. Neil Postman wrote, I believe I'm not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. But then he went on to say, when it is delivered as easy and amusing and fun, it's a different religion altogether. I think they're right. And yet, I think there's hope. I've noticed something about you, Redeemer. This amazing congregation of 60 nations gathering together. I've noticed something about you. You're, you're like the Bereans. You're willing to come together and study the Word and go deep. You respond to the Word of God. You live it out. In a world serving up cotton candy theology, in a world full of common wisdom disguised as Christian teaching, you are enjoying eating food that's mined from the richness of the Word of God. And I'm thrilled to watch you do that. I want to commend you for that. And I want to say, keep it up. You will never, ever be disappointed that you spent time in devotion to the Word of God. In a world full of entertainment, you are devoting yourself to God's Word. You remind me of the Bereans in Acts 6 who have been a more noble character, diligently search the Scriptures. Now, I'm not just buttering you up for the, the sermon which follows here. I'm, I'm not just saying that. But I want, to, I want to say something about the sermon. We're only going to look at five verses. Only five verses. But before you start planning out in your head what you're going to do with the extra time that uh, a short sermon is going to afford... I just want to warn you about something. These are four verses, but like the Bible, which is alive and living and active, these verses are rich and powerful and deep. And in fact, I'm a little overwhelmed as I walk through the things that we could talk about this morning. This passage speaks about the identity of Christ, the mode and method of baptism, images in the work of Christ, the love of God, sonship, the method of His ministry, the Holy Spirit, Trinity, temptation, Satan, angels, enacted displays of the gospel that points to the parallels to the second Adam's sin, Exodus from Egypt. Okay, you get the idea? I mean, how are we going to cover all that, right? We've got five verses. Are we going to do it this morning? No. <laughs> Actually, I just want to go over three questions that come from this text. Um, Why was Jesus baptized? This is the baptism for repentance of sin. Why is Jesus baptized? When He is, why did the Trinity show up? What in the world is going on? Why could this event be so important and powerful? Thirdly, why did Jesus have to face temptation as the sinless Son of God? Why was He facing temptation? For each question, I'll have three answers. Last week, Brian was exactly right to say that Mark is about something big, this big announcement. 
after thousands of thousands of years have passed, after generations and generations have come and gone, the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament is happening with John's announcement. And here, here's what it is that follows from that announcement of John. Verses 9 through 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals. And angels attended him. First question. Why was Jesus baptized? After all, wasn't he sinless? This is a baptism for the repentance of sins. Why would he submit to the baptism of repentance of sins? What good did it do? What would Jesus possibly demonstrate by being baptized? Well, I have three answers. Number one, it declares John's ministry true. Now, John was not affirmed by Jesus for his trendy and fashionable uh, clothing or ministry. John certainly didn't pander to the current religious fads of the day. He didn't give an easy, feel-good message about your best life now. John's message will eventually get him thrown in jail and murdered there because he told the truth. So Jesus affirms that. He affirms everything John was saying. And what Jesus loves about John is that he spoke the truth. It was truth about the Messiah, about the Christ, And it was spoken in the face of grave danger. Jesus affirms that above all. Listen, think about yourself. Are you interested in being declared affirmed by Jesus? Would you like Him to come and say, I love this man. I love this woman. I love what they're doing. Would you like that kind of affirmation in your life? Would you like the stamp of approval on your ministry, on your work, on your life? That can happen. That can come to you. Jesus loves those. Jesus affirms those. Jesus upholds those. Jesus rewards those who give bold proclamation of the truth about Jesus as the Christ in the face of scorn or outright danger. That's His promise to us. Not not my promise to you. That's His promise to you. A bold proclamation of truth about Jesus as the Christ in the face of scorn or danger. Secondly, Jesus' baptism identifies with our condition, which is a broken people in a broken world. He came to our place. He lived in our place. And in doing so, He shows us what kind of God He is. He's not a far off and distant God. He's a humble, submitted servant. He is the sinless Savior who comes to our sinful world and takes on this image of sin. Can you imagine what that was like for Christ? To have lived in heaven and to come be with us? And not just be with us. I mean, He could have come here and lived in a palace. He came 
and walked among us. He was poor. He knew our sickness, our pain. He knows our death. He took that on. He's a humble God. He even submits to our baptism. This humility shown by Jesus is required for all Christians. You cannot be a Christian without being humble. Last, last week, Brian told us correctly that all Christians are converts. That every person, according to the Bible, are fallen and sinful and separated from God at birth. That all must convert from a life of sin and turn to Christ in repentance and faith. No one is born a Christian. Nobody. You can't do it. It's a requirement that all who would turn from sin and trust in Christ would humble themselves, would acknowledge their sin, would say to the Lord God in humility, O God, forgive me. Now, of course, we we love humility in others, don't we? We think it's noble in Jesus. When it comes to ourselves, well, it's a little more difficult, you know. Maybe you feel like Winston Churchill did about humility. He was talking with a friend about another acquaintance, and his friend said about the acquaintance, he's a humble man. And Winston Churchill's response was, yes, and he has much to be humble about, right? (laughs) That pretty much sums up our situation before God. We have much to be humble about. One of our greatest affronts to God, one of our greatest sins before the Lord God is to actually act like we could appear before Him in our own righteousness. What a silly thought. Where did we come up with that? The Bible is clear. Our own righteousness is like filthy rags before God. The the only way to avoid trusting in our own righteous pride and arrogance is to humble ourselves and acknowledge we have no hope. Apart from the gift of God, which we do not deserve, we have no hope in and of ourselves. Listen, for those of you who are here this morning and you are checking out faith, we are so glad you're here. But, But you need to know that trusting in your own righteous pride before a holy God will only end in your destruction. I want to say to those of you who are here, who follow Christ, humility should mark you all the days of our lives because we have nothing to be proud about. Jesus has done all the work for us. Let it check you. Let let Christ's humility, as you see Him baptized in this passage, check your hearts as you, you tend to every day tend to be proud about something, something. Which has a lot to do with our third point about the baptism of Jesus. Thirdly, and most importantly, Jesus was baptized to foreshadow what He would do on the cross for us. His baptism at the Jordan is an image of His own death. He walks into baptism knowing, remembering, thinking about the one day that he will put a cross of wood on his shoulder, march down a road to a garbage pit called Golgotha, and be nailed to that piece of wood for your sins and mine. He knows that. So that when he submits in baptism, 
He is saying, this is my destiny. This is why I'm here. It's the only way any of our repentances would mean anything before a holy God. If there is some place, some substitute, some way to enter into God's presence. This this sign of the cross and the death and burial and resurrection of Christ is central to the Christian faith. That's seen in baptism right here. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. Every every church believes that. (laughs) There's no church that doesn't believe that. Okay, Every church thinks you should be baptized. Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Baptists, across the board. Okay, I I think maybe Quakers didn't. I mean, but they're just a little sect over in America. By and large, Christians throughout history and to this day agree that you must be baptized to be a part of the church. It's not essential for salvation, but it is an important non-essential. One of the most important. For salvation, understand me on that. This image of baptism is the image of our death, burial under the water, and resurrection to new life. That's the image of baptism. Jesus comes up out of the water here. The clear image of baptism in the New Testament and what we believe here at Redeemer is that you were buried under the water, raised to new life in Jesus. It's the image of baptism. We do that not for personal experience. We don't go get baptized so we have this warm fuzzy in our lives. We certainly don't do it thinking we'll be, we'll be saved. No. It's an image that gives witness to others what Christ has done for us. Listen, are you willing to take this image on in your own life to testify for Him? If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you need to ask yourself, why would you not want to be baptized? It's an easy, I mean, it's an easy thing. You just, I kind of, you know, you know, Dave stands there, he says something, you, poof, poof, you go under the water, you come back up, right? We've never had anyone drowned. <laughs> Ever. Could it be maybe your pride? Your concern of what others will think of you? Do you fear that you might have to say something in front of people? Listen, there are many here who have not been baptized after they became Christians, and we would encourage you if you've not been baptized as a believer, to get baptized. Not for your sake alone, although it's wonderful for the lordship of Christ in your life, but rather to give witness to Christ and His work for your life, to testify to the world what Jesus has done. I was on a flight to Zurich, and I got upgraded. Dude. (laughs) And I sat next to a dude, I mean a real dude. He was a skateboarder from New Zealand. Actually, he was in a cast uh, sitting there next to me. And, uh, man, I'm so excited about lunch, you know. And, um, and I'm pretty sure that God has upgraded me because I'm so good. <laughs> right? And uh, somehow I asked him how he broke his leg. It was skateboarding. And he mentions that it's really got me thinking a lot about life. Right? Oh. Two realizations. One. Darn, I don't think I got upgraded because I'm so great. (laughs) And two, I think I'm supposed to talk to him about faith, right? He's a 70-year-old kid. He's got a skateboard with him. And uh, what do I I have to say? I'm 54 years old. I'm an old guy, right? Bald, fat. What do I I have to say? I say what the one connection I have. I have a 17-year-old kid. I said, really? 
What's he do in Dubai? Well, he's very active in the youth group. Really, what's that? (laughs) It's an amazing gathering of people from all over the world that come together over the boundaries that the world sets in place to say that even as youth, we love Jesus. He said, oh, that's interesting. I said, just actually yesterday, you know what happened? What? He got baptized. Really, what's that? (laughs) Well, let me show you. I have my camera right here. Pull it out. I got pictures. And I walk through the baptism. I explain how what Christians believe about Jesus is that he died for our sins and was risen again to give us new life in Christ. He said, oh, that's very interesting. Promptly went to sleep. I don't know, you know what. But maybe you'll think about it, right? (laughs) Baptism is the witness that we have for the world. Three things. Three things on why Jesus was baptized. One, it affirms the ministry of John. Two, it demonstrates humble submission to God in identification with our broken world. Three, Jesus points to his own death, burial, and resurrection. Second question. Why did the Trinity show up as Jesus is baptized? What's the deal? Why is this so important? It's astounding. It's unique to Christ. It's visual, it's auditory, it's rare, because the three persons of the Trinity are here in the same place. It's not since the law of Moses has there been something so powerful. It even reminds us a bit of Mount Sinai, you know, where Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law as God comes down to him, right? Remember that? Right here, Jesus comes up out of the water. He receives the Holy Spirit as the heavens are rent open as God comes down to him, right? It's the the same image. It's powerful. It's amazing. And in that regard, to, to Mount Sinai, it's much the same. What's going on? What's being signified? Some of you know. Number one, first, to affirm the identity of Jesus. So just as Jesus has affirmed the identity of John, so God affirms the identity of Christ. It's like the coronation of a king. The king has come. The prophecies are true. Those servant songs we've been looking at for weeks in Isaiah are happening at this point. All those things have been foretold are suddenly being fulfilled. It's the start of the new covenant of God. This is bigger than Abraham. This is bigger than Moses. This is bigger than David and all the prophets, all the law, because it all points to Jesus here. In Luke 24, he says, all of the law and the prophets point to me. Point to me. God is saying Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And the reason it's grand, the reason it's triumphant and magnificent, is this is the starting point of the turning point of human history. Christians believe that the turning point of human history is in the life of Jesus. And this is its start. Secondly, the Trinity shows up because it shows God's heart. Notice the first words in the book of Mark are words about what? Judgment? The first words from God in the book of Mark, spoken by God, are about His love 
You see that? This is my son whom I love. You know, we, we may commonly link love and God uh, in our own minds today because it's a common understanding about God. Maybe it's actually too common. But in the day of Christ, this was shocking, radical, unexpected thing for God to say. The second words from God are about his pleasure in him. I am well pleased. He's pleased with who Jesus is. There are many here who have never heard their parent tell them they loved them. Difficult to imagine a more important thing to hear from a father towards his child than I love you and I'm well pleased with you. And those of you who are parents and those of you who may one day become parents, which is most of us. Be sure and talk to your children about this. But how much more important to hear from God? Do you want to know and experience and be sure about God's pleasure and love for you? Would you like to be affirmed by God? I suspect you do, and you can be. But listen to me carefully about this. I'm going to tell you about how you can come under the love and affirmation of God. But first I want to say how we don't get it. We do not get it. We do not pursue the love of God in wrong ways, although many do, and usually by works. We try to screw up our will and do better, right? We try and and earn our way. We grit our teeth. I'll try harder. I'll try to do better. But you can't ever get there on your own power. That's the the problem with the first covenant that came at Mount Sinai. The book of the law. The law was no good for anything except to show us our sin. It exposes our sin. It shows us we're bigger sinners than we thought we were. Listen, here's the way to think about law in your own life. Here's its practical application in your own life. You can ask this question of yourself. The law says, if then. That's what the law says. If I do this, then, right? God, whatever it is, God will love me more. Uh, I'll be affirmed by God. I can be accepted by God. If I do stuff, then good things will happen to me, right? That's the law. That's the law. And in one sense, it's true if you could. The problem is that little two-letter word, if. We're sinners. We're chained to sin. We're going to talk about that in a second. But we're chained to sin. We can't do good. We can't possibly fulfill the law. You've all broken it already, probably this morning. But the whole life of it is breaking the law constantly over time, repeatedly. We cannot. We cannot get to the then of the law. Grace. Grace, on the other hand, is because, therefore. Because, because of what Christ has done for us, therefore, we can walk in the love and forgiveness of God. We can be affirmed by Him. Does that make sense to you? It it looks very similar, see, but you must distinguish this in your mind. You must know the difference because of the if-then or the because-therefore. It's only 
in the because therefore that we can know the love and affirmation of God. Because Christ has died for us. Therefore, we can live in Him through faith and be accepted and loved and affirmed and pleasing to God. The Bible is clear about this. Hebrews 11.6 No one, no one can please God without faith. If you don't have faith, you can't please God. It doesn't matter how good the thing looks to the world. It doesn't matter how nice you are in the world. It doesn't matter how many people pat you on the back in the world if it's without faith, you see. It's of no value to God. So the way to be loved and affirmed and pleasing to God is to, listen to me, is to be found in Christ. That's the only way. You must be found in Christ. I was at Nissen Matthew's baptism a number of years ago at, um, at Redeemer. Oh, actually, it was at UCCD. And um, Nissen had gone through very difficult times to come to a point where he could be baptized. Much opposition in his life. A great step of faith. An astounding work of God in his own life. Great fears about what it would mean uh, in his family. So when he got up and gave his testimony before he was baptized, he said maybe the shortest testimony I've ever heard, but also to me, maybe one of the most powerful. Galatians 2.20 His life is my life. His death, my death. Thirdly, the appearance of the Trinity helps us not only see the identity of Jesus and the heart of God, but also shows us what happens in our salvation. We receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends on all those who would repent and turn to Christ in faith, just as the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus. I want to tell you how, I want to tell you how the Holy Spirit works in salvation. Kind of a peek behind the spiritual curtain, so to speak. Uh, this is... This is a theological point by point. I want you to hang with me on this because I want you to know doctrine. You know, the Bible says, watch your life and doctrine carefully, right? So I want to give you a point of doctrine about the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Here's how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit, just by the way, just parenthetically, this is for free. Um, I, was, I, was, uh, I think I was uh, in the foyer and someone came up to me and said, uh, someone new who's checking us out, do you guys believe in the Holy Spirit here? And uh, I said, uh, yeah, he's the third person of the Trinity. <laughs> Actually, I don't think you can believe in, in anything in the Christian faith and not believe in the Holy Spirit. She said, oh, good, okay. And then she wandered off, and I thought, I wonder what she meant. Uh, how could I not believe in the Holy Spirit? But I think I know what she means. So I want to I give some teaching, just, just by the way. Here's how the Holy Spirit works in salvation in your life. You are first, when the Holy Spirit in His gracious kindness comes to you in sovereignty and touches your heart, you are regenerated. That's the first work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You're regenerated. That is, regeneration is uh, like generate. To generate means to bring life. To regenerate means to renew life, renew the Spirit. So the Spirit that's dead in us, that was at one point in the garden aware of God, suddenly becomes alive. And, And the response is, whoa, there's a God. 
That's regeneration. Not very technical, theological there, was it? <laughs> but let me do it again. Whoa, there's a God. That's regeneration, where we come to this understanding the Holy Spirit moves into our hearts and makes us aware that God exists. The second, usually concurrent, not always, but usually concurrent thing that the Holy Spirit does is convict us. It's very similar. The Holy Spirit comes to us and tells us, well, it goes like this, whoa, there's a God, and then, whoa, I'm not on His side. Actually, I'm an enemy of his. Oh my goodness, I'm a sinner. I'm a rebellious sinner. I'm his enemy, the Bible says. That's conviction of sin. Suddenly, where you realize both there is a God and that he is is opposed to you in your sin. The third thing that the Holy Spirit gives us, does to us, is causes us to cry out in saving faith. Oh God, save me! Save me! I am undone. Like the people at Pentecost. What what must we do to be saved? That's, That's the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. We are given forgiveness of sin when we cry out in saving faith. We're given the gift of salvation. And then the Holy Spirit seals that work of salvation in our lives through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Just for my Pentecostal friends, do not confuse baptism of the Holy Spirit with fillings of the Spirit. There is only a one-time baptism of the Spirit that comes at the point of salvation. We are all, if you are a true follower of Christ and repented of sin and follow Him in faith, you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, there's many instances of fillings of the Spirit throughout our lives. Those usually come when we are confronted by evil and wickedness, usually come when we are confronted in our faith and we need the extra special push of the Holy Spirit to respond in a godly way. It usually comes to us, those fillings of the Spirit usually come to us for a powerful proclamation in evangelism. It's not, it's not all the... It's not, not all the I digress. I digress. Three answers. The appearance of the Trinity affirms the identity of Jesus. It shows us God's heart. It demonstrates to us the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Last question. Third question. Why did Jesus need to be tempted? You know, I've I've often thought that one of the scariest verses in all of Scripture is Jesus, full of the Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the desert where He was tempted by Satan. Does Does that not challenge much of our modern superficial understandings about how God works in our life? Full of the Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by Satan. What's going on here? The other Gospels recount the temptations of Jesus, usually in in terms of three temptations that that Jesus faced. Uh, There's less detail here in Mark. But actually, it's, in my mind, a bit more frightening. Because the text leads us to, to understand that Jesus was there 40 days being tempted by Satan. It wasn't just three temptations that he kind of knocked out. But 40 days at his most vulnerable points, 40 days in the desert, 
This, this passage, this temptation, helps correct our misshapen understandings of the Christian life. It's certainly a sharp correction in Jesus' day that Jesus would be this powerful conqueror and kick out the Roman occupiers. But for us, in this day, it corrects us too. It corrects all those who expect that a life of the Spirit will be a happy life, a joyful life, a wealthy life, a healthy life. It corrects that. It should correct us because often, To walk in the Spirit of God is to walk through hard times, difficult things from God for His purposes. Six years ago, Leanne began to suffer enormous problems, endocrine problems, Something was wrong. She just couldn't sleep when she wanted to sleep, couldn't stay awake. It cycled through. Doctors didn't help. We came to the elders for prayer and anointing. That actually might have been the only thing that helped. We were so desperate. We went to shrinks. We were so desperate. I'm willing to tell you, we went to psychologists in front of the whole crowd. I'm telling you. It was so desperate. And every morning, she would crawl out of bed and cling to the cross. There was nothing I could do. Some days I'd have to hold her up just to get her dressed. And as the months turned into years, she began to despair of ever getting better, ever being well. And so she sank into depression and despaired of life except, except that she knew that she trusted in a God on a cross. You guys... We follow a God on a cross who knows our pain, who understands our frailty, who has come to redeem us. We we don't know. We don't know how. God in His graciousness healed Leanne. We're not sure what happened, but He did. So about four years ago, she woke up one morning and said, I think I feel a little better. And uh, we didn't want to get our hopes up too much, but over time, over the next couple years, God healed her. But let me tell you that Leanne and I both believe that it was God who brought that to her. It was not plan B. It was not a mistake. It was not Satan. It was plan A. And she believes that it was the way that God burned out sin in her life that could not have been gotten out of her life in any other way. And I, do I understand that? Not really. Leanne, to me, is one of the most perfect people I've ever met. <laughs> Difficult for me to live with that sometimes. But, I mean, it's true. What a godly, gentle, humble woman of God. And, and yet, it was a deep work. God brought that to her. What about you? When you go through a hard time, when when a hard time comes to you, are you tempted to question God? Why me, oh God? How come this has happened to me? To whine, to complain? 
Sure we are. We all are. We all are. But when you go through a hard time, does your spiritual life suffer? And you go through a good time and your spiritual life's okay. You know, it's a sign of deep maturity if you only do well spiritually when things are good in life and bad spiritually when things are going bad. Hard times give us an opportunity to give glory to God. Hard times may come from God's hand. Not always. But hard times also come from God's hand, just as they did with Jesus. Bottom line, bottom line, hear me on this. The more clearly you love God during hard times, the more your life will glorify God. Secondly, his temptation shows him walking through what the children of Israel should have done but didn't. Think of the connections here with Exodus. Just, by the way, if you want to understand the New Testament, you must understand the Old. They're together. (laughs) And so I'm often longing for us to to come back and forth and understand that when we look at the Old Testament, we're pointing to Jesus again. So in the Exodus, all of the stuff that was happening through Moses and the children of Israel is pointing to this time with Jesus. Not the other way around. Jesus is not reflecting something that happened back at the Exodus. No, the Exodus was pointing to Jesus and what he would do. And as he walks through the Jordan, it's the same river where the children of Israel entered into the promised land. It's because Jesus is the one we enter into the promised land with. The children of Israel spent 40 days in the promised land before they rebelled. Remember they rebelled? And God says, I'm going to give you one year for every day in the promised land because of your rebellion in the wilderness. But Jesus spent 40 days in the desert and resisted rebellion. Unlike the children of Israel who grew faithful and then were attacked by wild animals, unlike them, Jesus is faithful and protected. There's many parallels. And Mark parallels often the walks in the Old Testament because Jesus is being pointed to in the Old Testament. We should rejoice about this. Because Jesus is repairing broken images that God set up back thousands of years that would point to Him. He's repairing those images. He's helping us understand those images and what they were supposed to be about. And He can do that in your life. You know those places in life that you wish you could have back? You just wish you could have it. The Bible talks about the gnashing of teeth, right? This is, this is the gnashing of teeth. Oh, I wish I could have that back. I wish I could go back to that moment where I blew what God wanted me to do, right? Let me tell you, He can. He can walk with you and restore those places in your life. He, he may not be able to take away the consequences of sin. <laughs> those are with us always, right? Those things that have marred us, scarred us. They're there. But He will walk with you in those places to reform the images of God that He longs to have in our lives. Thirdly, and most importantly, the temptation of Christ is Jesus' first step in the victory over Satan. Much is at stake here. Satan knows it. 
We read the details in the other gospel accounts. Bottom line, he resists Satan. And he does what Adam could not do in the garden. And no one has done since then, since the time of Adam in the garden. Jesus resists temptation. He does what Moses couldn't do in in the Exodus. He lives the law. He lives a perfect life. You know, most people on the streets would think Jesus came to do good deeds, right? That's, that's That's what your average person on the street thinks. Jesus was just kind of about good deeds. And that's what he did. They couldn't be more wrong. Although Jesus certainly did good deeds. The most important ministry of Jesus was to break the power of sin in the world so that he could set free those held captive by sin and death. To understand what he has done, you need to understand how sin grips your life. If you've never repented of sin and turned to Christ in faith, the Bible says you're chained to sin. You're a slave to sin. You can't get out of sin. There's no way in your own power. You, now, you can, you can act like you're not a sinner. You can dress up like you're not a sinner. You can talk about how great freedom is. You, know, you can strut around like you're free. But when sin jerks your chain, you're obedient to sin. That chain stretches from Satan's hand through your chest into your heart. And when he moves it, you do too. That's what it means to be a slave. You can't set your, yourself free. You might want to be free, but you can't. Jesus breaks the chain of sin that enslaves us. Now, now that's, that's, of course, not to say that as a Christian we don't sin. I'm not saying that at all. Of course you do. The difference is the slavery has been broken. And you can choose not to sin. There is power available to you that you've never had as a non-Christian. When Christ resists Satan in the desert, he's doing something no one has ever done before. He defeats sin and the power of Satan. He becomes the second Adam, the sinless one. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. Look it up. So that he might become the perfect, sinless sacrifice that will ransom your life and mine if we simply put our faith and trust in Christ after we repent of sin. So remember three things that are important to understand about why Jesus was tempted. It helps us understand life in the Spirit. Secondly, He's walking through the places where the rightful images of God were hidden by sin, and He's healing those images. And thirdly, it's the first assault on Satan's grip on sin, which will be accomplished on the cross when Jesus says, It is finished. I have, I have one just little observation I want to make uh, about this passage of Scripture, this short passage of Scripture. Maybe we get the whole thing up there again. Because um, it's so powerful. And uh, I just, I'm amazed at the unfolding of the announcement of the gospel in verse 1. You know, so Brian spoke last week about the, uh, this announcement of the gospel, right? And do um, you notice how Jesus gives essentially a mini-presentation of the gospel with his life. Do you see that here? So, so it goes like this. So John proclaims the message and people respond, right? Just as the gospel is proclaimed and people respond. The one who responds, uh, the most important one who responds, is the, the man of faith, Jesus. Lots of people come from Galilee and Judea. Only one come from Galilee, from Nazareth. 
when he comes, he identifies, he walks into the life of, of, uh, of Christ, foreshadowed in the baptism, right? You see that? So he responds humbly in faith to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He takes that on. He's, he's walking through this image, humbly, willingly, submittingly, for the repentance of sin. And he takes on faith. That is sealed for him in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not just the baptism of water, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So the baptism comes down. Then we walk in the Spirit through the trials and temptations of life. Fighting sin, resisting Satan and temptations until one day we will be ministered to by angels at the point of death. You see that? I'm blown away by that. This mini presentation of the gospel right here in these verses after the pronouncement of the gospel in verses 1 through 8. That actually happens a lot through Mark. I think you'll see that as we continue to go through it. Hey, listen. I love that we're going deep into the Word. I'm proud of you guys. I love being with you. Let's grow together in this gospel of great grace. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we recognize how much truth is contained in just five verses and we are a bit overwhelmed to think of all of Scripture pointing to you and yet we know it does. So Father, never let us be flippant about your word. Never let us come to a place where we think we know it all. Certainly, Father, never never let us um, lose our confidence in your gospel and the richness of it for our lives. I pray for the gospel in our lives, Lord, for those here who know you, to walk daily in faith, repenting of sin, knowing of the great grace that awaits them in the because and therefores of, of, of your life in us. For those that don't know you, Father, I pray for them too. I thank you that they're here. I pray, Father, that they would come to an understanding, true understanding of your gospel and what it means to humbly repent and turn to you in faith. Father, I would ask that you would give grace to them and that they would know the joy, the great joy and happiness of knowing you in fullness. In all these things, Father, we pray that Redeemer would bless your heart. We long to be a church that gives you pleasure. Father, we long to be a church that you love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.